This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and am now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and developed new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes, an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do. And thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup. And next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter. The older woman evidently had some form of dementia, and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters. After some explaining and finally understanding, the elderly woman proclaimed, You mean I'm a great-grandmother? That's wonderful! Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories about everything here on the show. And one of our favorite writers is C.S. Lewis. And we talk about World War II a lot. We want to connect the two right here in this particular story. When World War II broke out, C.S. Lewis tried to re-enter military service to instruct cadets, but the government wanted him to write propaganda instead. Lewis declined, but he began speaking on BBC radio. He is perhaps best known for a series of religious talks and religious broadcasts he gave over BBC as London was under siege by Nazi bombers. Royal Air Force Chief Marshal Sir Donald Hardman later wrote of this trying time and of C.S. Lewis's contribution to the war effort. Quote, It was a time of strain and difficulty for all of us. The war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. And Lewis provided just that. Better still, he gave us back our old traditional Christian faith so that we could accept it with new confidence, with something like certainty, without ever being political, military, or jingoistic. I'm sure that he did, perhaps without meaning to, a great deal for what is called the war effort. The transcripts of these talks would turn into perhaps Lewis's best-known nonfiction book, Mere Christianity. Sadly, most of the radio had been lost, but we have the last remaining recordings here. And here, Lewis begins with a thought on prayer. In these talks, I've had to say a good deal about prayer. And before going on to my main subject tonight, I'd like to deal with a difficulty some people find about the whole idea of prayer. Somebody put it to me by saying, I can believe in God, all right, but what I can't swallow is this idea of him listening to several hundred million human beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. And I find quite a lot of people feel that difficulty. Well, the first thing to notice is that the whole sting of it comes in the words, at the same moment. Most of us can imagine a God attending to any number of claimants if only they come one by one, and he has an endless time to do it in. So what's really at the back of the difficulty is this idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, that, of course, is what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along. And there's room for precious little in each. That's what time is like. And of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this time series, this arrangement of past, present and future, isn't simply the way life comes to us, but is the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe, and God himself, are always moving on from a past to a future, just as we are. But many learned men don't agree with that. I think it was the theologians who first started the idea that some things are not in time at all. 
Later, the philosophers took it over, and now some of the scientists are doing the same. Almost certainly, God is not in time. His life doesn't consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he hasn't got to listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 and every other moment from the beginning to the end of the world is always the present for him. If you like to put it that way, he has infinity in which to listen to the split second of prayer put up by a pilot as his plane crashes in flames. That's difficult, I know. Can I try to give something not the same, but a bit like it? Suppose I'm writing a novel. I write, Mary laid down her book, next moment came a knock at the door. For Mary, who's got to live in the imaginary time of the story, there's no interval between putting down the book and hearing the knock. But I, her creator, between writing the first part of that sentence and the second, may have gone out for an hour's walk and spent the whole hour thinking about Mary. I know that's not a perfect example, but it may just give a glimpse of what I mean. The point I want to drive home is that God has infinite attention, infinite leisure to spare for each one of us. He doesn't have to take us in the lump. You're as much alone with him as if you were the only thing he'd ever created. When Christ died, he died for you individually, just as much as if you'd been the only man in the world. And with that, Lewis returned to the main subject, explaining the changes that Christians undergo. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self, and that this process goes on very far inside. One's most private wishes, one's point of view, are the things that have to be changed. That's why unbelievers complain that Christianity is a very selfish religion. Isn't it very selfish? Even morbid, they say, to be always bothering about the inside of your own soul, instead of thinking of humanity. Now, what would an NCO say to a soldier who had a dirty rifle, and when told to clean it, replied, But, Sergeant, isn't it very selfish, even morbid, to be always bothering about the inside of your own rifle, instead of thinking of the United Nations? Well... We needn't bother about what the NCO would actually say. You see the point? The man is not going to be much use to the United Nations if his rifle isn't fit to shoot with. In the same way, people who are still acting from their old natural selves won't do much real permanent good to other people. Let me explain that. History isn't just a story of bad people doing bad things. It's quite as much a story of people trying to do good things. 
but somehow something goes wrong. Take the common expression, cold as charity. How do we come to say that? From experience. We've learnt how unsympathetic, patronising and conceited charitable people often are. And yet, hundreds and thousands of them started out really anxious to do good. And when they'd done it, somehow it just wasn't as good as it ought to have been. The old story, what you are comes out in what you do. A crab apple tree can't produce eating apples. As long as the old self is there, its taint will be over all we do. We try to be religious and become Pharisees. We try to be kind and become patronizing. Social service ends in red tape and officialdom. Unselfishness becomes a form of showing off. I don't mean, of course, that we're to stop trying to be good. We've got to do the best we can. If the soldier's fool enough to go into battle with a dirty rifle, he mustn't run away. But I do mean that the real cure lies far deeper. Out of ourselves and into Christ, we must go. And there you have it, just part of this remarkable talk to the British people, a people who knew they were in a spiritual battle with the Nazis, not just a military one. And when we come back, the rest of this remarkable talk, one of the only talks left in recorded history of C.S. Lewis's remarkable, well, remarkable spiritual talks over the BBC at the height of World War II. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to talk about everything here on the show, and today we're letting C.S. Lewis do the talking. And again, most of this audio was lost, but what remained from these mere Christianity talks, and this is how mere Christianity came to be, one of the biggest selling books of all time, a book personally that brought me to Christianity. And this show, as you know, There's no dog in the fight. We talk to atheists. We've talked to astrophysicists who don't believe in evolution and people who do. And we welcome and talk about every walk of life, every race, creed, color. But we openly talk about faith, too, which so few shows do. And C.S. Lewis is one of the monsters and titans of the 20th century. 
as it comes to religious thought. And he and his pal, Tolkien, while they were literary giants, writing about big things, and they matter today as much as ever before. And so let's return to this talk. And what's remarkable about Lewis is how ordinary he sounds. This is big, a big Oxford Don, a big man of letters. But I think what made him great was he spoke in layman's terms directly to us about big things, complicated things. He continues here by diving into a discussion of change, of evolution, if you will. The change won't, for most of us, happen suddenly. And I must admit that for most Christians, it'll only be beginning to the very end of our present lives. But there are some in whom it goes further, even before death, far enough for you to see it. Their very faces and voices are different. When you meet them, you know you're up against something which, so to speak, begins where you leave off. Something stronger, quieter, happier, more alive than ordinary humanity. Now, that's just where Christianity, as I think, has the real answer to a question a lot of modern people are asking. Everyone's heard of evolution, how men evolve from lower types of life. And people often ask, what's the next step? When is the thing beyond man going to appear? Some imaginative writers even try to picture what the next step will be like. But they usually end in nonsense about men with six arms or wings or something of that kind. But the Christians think those people are on the wrong tack. The next step has already appeared. The next step is from being mere creatures to being sons of God. The new kind of man appeared in Christ. And other new men, little Christ, are already to be found, dotted here and there about the earth. We Christians don't call it evolution because we believe it isn't something coming up out of blind nature but something coming down from the world of light and power and knowledge beyond all nature. But if you like to call it evolution, do. The next step is here. You can become one of the new men in Christ if you like. Or, if you prefer, you can refuse the step and sink back. Now, if we take the step, it involves losing what we now call ourselves. That doesn't mean that all the people who accept Christ are going to be exactly like one another. I know it sounds as if it did. If there's one Christ, and he's to be in us all, actually replacing our personalities with his own, what difference will there be between us? And that's a big question. And big questions for anybody groping with being atheists, becoming Christians, being Christians and becoming atheists. And people on the fence about these things are people who don't care at all, but still find it interesting. And that's, well, these are questions people have been asking and talking about for, well, since as long as man was alive. And again, we do that here on this show. Lewis tackles this very fair question head on by using everyday experiences to explain something extremely abstract. Now, here I've got a rather difficult thing to say. 
On the one hand, it isn't true that we shall lose our personal differences by letting Christ take us over. On the other hand, I don't think Christ can take us over as long as we're bothering about what will happen to our personality. Can I take the first point first? If a person didn't know about salt, wouldn't he think that anything with such a strong taste would kill the taste of all the other things in any dish you put it into? We know that as a matter of fact, it brings out their real taste. Well, it's rather like that with Christ. When you've completely given up yourself to his personality, you will then, for the first time in your life, be developing into a real person. He made the whole world. He invented, as an author invents characters in a book, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. Our real selves are, so to speak, all waiting for us in him. What I call myself now is hardly a person at all. It's mainly a meeting place for various natural forces, desires and fears, etc., some of which come from my ancestors and some from my education, some perhaps from devils. The self you were really intended to be is something that lives not from nature, but from God. At the beginning of these talks, I said there were personalities in God. Well, I go further now. There are no real personalities anywhere else. I mean, no full, complete personalities. It's only when you allow yourself to be drawn into his life that you turn into a true person. But on the other hand, it's just no good at all going to Christ for the sake of developing a fuller personality. As long as that's what you're bothering about, you haven't begun. Because the very first step towards getting a real self is to forget about the self. It will come only if you're looking for something else. That holds, you know, even for earthly matters. Even in literature or art, no man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. Even in social life, you'll never make a good impression on other people until you stop thinking what sort of impression you make. That principle runs all through life from the top to the bottom. Give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Look for Christ and you'll get him and with him everything else thrown in. Look for yourself and you'll get only hatred, loneliness, despair, and ruin. 
And imagine this voice coming at you during World War II again. There's no politics here, folks. There's no anything. It's reason. It's an atheist discussion with his own country about his coming to Christ and what it did for him and what it did for the world. My goodness, C.S. Lewis has done so much. And that's why we spent some time with him. No, he's not American, but my goodness, the millions of Americans who've read the screw tape letters or the Chronicles of Narnia or mere Christianity as I did, and which led me to my walk with God. That's why we do these stories. C.S. Lewis's story and his conversation with the British people during World War II here on Our American Stories. Exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we bumped in with that classic Sinatra song because we're featuring stories about Frank Sinatra from the great comedian Tom Dreesen. Tom was Frank's opening act during the last 14 years of his career. They did countless shows together. They did plane rides across the country together, nights of laughter that went into the wee hours of the morning. Tom Dreesen was arguably one of the closest people to Sinatra near the end of his career. By the way, we did a terrific hour on Tom himself and his life in our American Dreamers series. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to listen to it. And again, here's our very first episode of Come Fly With Me. Take it away, Joey. So, Tom, in, in the late 70s and early 80s, you were having an awesome career, opening up with the likes of Sammy Davis Jr. and Smokey Robinson, and then all of a sudden you had the opportunity to open up with the king of show business. Tell us how that happened. In 1982, I was working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe with Smokey Robinson. I'd been touring with Smokey for a while. To this day, we're the best of friends. So I'm working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe in 1982, and Frank Sinatra's appearing next door at Harrah's, where I had worked many times before in the past. And I wanted to see Frank's show, because uh, I had seen him once before in a 20,000-seat arena here in, in Chicago at the uh, Chicago Stadium. And to watch him walk out on the stage, when he walked out on stage, he created more excitement walking to the microphone than most people did with their whole act. The audience was electrified by just the mere fact that Frank Sinatra was walking out. So I didn't want to miss that opening. So our shows were simultaneous. So when I came off stage that night, I bolted. I left Caesars and ran out the door, didn't even change out of my stage clothes, and, uh, and ran over to Harris. I was running into the showroom, and they knew I was coming. The maitre d' knew I was coming, so he had a place for me. So as I was rushing into the showroom, the vice president of Harris Hotel, a man named Holmes Hendrickson, was talking to some big heavyset guy with a cigar, and he saw me. And he said, Tommy, come here. And I reluctantly went over because I didn't want to miss Frank's opening. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. Well, I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer and a very powerful guy himself. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he'd heard that, you know, a million times before. And he winked at the vice president, and I caught the wink. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 
And I knew he was putting me on, you know. And I, and I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. He said, I like this kid. And a week later, I got a call that they want me to work with Frank Sinatra, the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. Were you expecting that call? No. I, I mean, I, I told my manager afterward, I said, gee, I met Frank Sinatra's lawyer, and uh, Holmes Henderson plugged me to open for him. Uh, but anyhow, I, 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 you know, in the back of your mind, you're saying, gee, this, maybe that might happen. But, you know, I didn't think in my wildest dreams that Frank Sinatra would want me to be his opening act. He had his daughter, Nancy, and, and uh, other comedians that were working with him at the time. And uh, anyhow, I got the call. Uh, worked with Frank one week at Atlantic City, so uh, at the Golden Nugget. So I went there thinking, I'm going to get my picture taken with him and hang it in every bar in Chicago and say that I got to meet Frank Sinatra and got to open for him. And the second night I was there at the Golden Nugget, he and his wife Barbara Sinatra took me out to dinner that night after our second show. Now, tell me what the first show was like. So, you know, at the time you already had been performing with people like Sammy Davis Jr. and all that. So I'm sure you were already over the, the nerves of performing for large audiences, but now you're performing with literally the king of show business. Were you anxious? Were you nervous? Every opening night for every artist is, 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 that you're opening for, when you're opening for their audience, you know, opening for Smokey's audience and Sammy's audiences, you, you immediately, you get a feeling and I knew how to work in front of those audiences. Now I'm opening for Frank Sinatra. I mean, that's like an altar boy serving mass for the Pope. You know, you, you know, he was show business. He was everything that I ever dreamed show business was. You know, I was a little boy shining shoes in bars, and he was on the jukebox in every bar that I shined shoes in. And every guy in that neighborhood, every neighborhood guy wanted to be like Sinatra, you know. So now I'm with him. T tell us about the first time you actually met him. He was at rehearsal, and I went into rehearsal, and his conductor at that time was a guy named Joe Parnello, and I knew Joe Parnello. So when I walked out on stage, Frank was rehearsing. I just was kind of off the side. Frank was going over some numbers with Joe, and Joe said, Hi, Tommy, how you doing? And Frank said, Who's that? And he said, He's the comedian on the show. And Frank said to him, Is he funny? And Joe, Joe Parnello said, Yeah, he's very funny, Mr. S. You know, and he, he smiled. You know, Frank smiled. You know, now I really had some pressure. <laughs> Because uh, I figured if I didn't do good, Joe would get fired, too, for recommending me, you know. But anyhow, that opening night, I went out and, uh, and you know, had, the, had a little bit of the nerves waiting in the wings. And then all of a sudden, when they introduced me and I walked out, I'd, I had been there before. I've done this before. And I just let that happen, you know. And, uh, and, and it was, a, I scored real well. And the second night, after, after we had done a couple shows together, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And we were having dinner, and I can remember like it was yesterday, in the middle of dinner, he set his knife and his fork down, and he, I was sitting across from him. He looked me right in the eye, he said, I like your material, and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me, if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. I said, yeah, you can. And as you know, it turned out to be 45, 50 cities a year for 14 years. What was that dinner like? You know, you, you, were, you just performed for Frank Sinatra for the first two times in your life, and now all of a sudden you're sitting across the table from him. Well, the first time going to dinner with him, you're really watching yourself. But I tell you something funny that happened at that dinner that I, I haven't told anybody. I've told a couple of my buddies about it, but I've never told about it on the air. But his secretary made the reservations. She didn't make the reservations under Frank Sinatra because it was after our last show. She made the reservations for a party of eight. And we pull up in a limo. In, in squad cars, you know, he had two bodyguards there from Atlantic City. 
So we pull up to this restaurant. It turns out the owner was looking out the window and he sees a squad car and he sees a limousine and he sees Frank Sinatra getting out of the limousine and he rushes to the podium there and looked and there was no Frank Sinatra on the reservation list, you know, and now he's panicking because there's no room in the restaurant. It's packed. So when Frank comes walking in with Dorothy Oman, she said, Dorothy says, I have reservations for you. The owner said, Mr. Sinatra, oh my God, Mr. Sinatra, we don't have a table ready, but we'll get something ready. Frank said, take your time, no hurry. We'll go to the bar, we'll have a drink. Now, meanwhile, Frank's going to the bar, and I'm, I'm at the bar, but I look and I see the owner, he's telling people, I don't know whether relatives or friends, get out, get out, you know, get, get, get to the table. Now, the people are mad, he's taking the dishes off the table, because he's going to make room for Frank Sinatra, right? Well, these people mumble, grumble, mumble, grumble, and, you know, they went in the bar, he evidently must have been friends or, or good customers or family. And now he walks up and he said, your table's ready, Mr. Sinatra. He said, oh my God, he said, I haven't even got my drink yet. So now we sit down, and of course the owner gets the chef out of the kitchen, and Mr. Sinatra, may we recommend this? And, and the guy's so excited that Frank Sinatra's eating in his restaurant. And Frank orders some kind of fish. Anyhow, we're sitting down, and finally the, 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 the meal comes, and the, the owner is very proud, and he sets the plate down. Frank takes like a bite, and we're all sitting there, Frank takes a bite, and he said, ah, it's too salty, and he pushed the plate away. Now, when he pushed the plate away, the owner said, said, Mr. Sinatra, he said, it's a bit too salty. And he, the, the chef's behind the owner. He turned to the owner, turns around, and he said to the chef, it's too salty. You know, he's <laughs> yelling at the chef. He, so they start recommending other things. How about this? How about that? You know, Frank said, you know what? I'm not hungry. I really am not. I probably shouldn't have ordered anything. I'm just going to have a drink here, and, and that'll be it. But the owner said, well, how about now the owner's down to like hot dogs. How about a hot dog? He recommended everything on the menu. Frank said, no. He said, really, I'm, 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 I'm not being fussy. I'm just not hungry. And the owner said, well, Mr. Sinatra. Now, he goes in the kitchen, and I swear it was like an old B-movie. You hear him in the kitchen telling the chef, of all the things, and the salty, and you think about it, and you hear him yelling at the chef. And, and, and you know, like the walls are shaking, you know. But it, it, sitting down at dinner with him was surreal, because, you know, I'm, now I'm, I'm sitting across from Frank Sinatra, you know. <laughs> and, and later, it always happened that way, that, that I would pinch myself sometimes. Because again, let me go back to this poor kid that I was, shining shoes in bars, and Frank Sinatra's on every jukebox. And here I was, years later, flying with Frank Sinatra, sitting across having dinner with him, him talking to me like I'm a peer. Good show tonight, Tommy. I like your new material. And how I wanted to pinch myself, or, you know, uh, and yet I didn't want to let him know how much in awe of him I was. And there were nights I wanted to say, oh man. You were so good tonight in that particular number or that moment or even the whole show. I somehow picked up on that when I first met him that he had millions of fans. He didn't need another fan. He wanted a buddy, a pal. And I don't know what made me, maybe being a former bartender, my instinct on that. So I never let him know how much in awe of him I was. You know, but there were nights I just, I, it was surreal, you know, that I wanted to pinch myself. You know, there's another thing I picked up on him. He, he never, he was not very good at taking compliments. And my friend David Letterman is the same way. You know, David, if you said to David, gee, that's a great show. You know, great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, how's the kids? You know, <clears throat> if I said, David, I saw your monologue the other night, that bit you did about whatever it was, it was very funny. Yeah, yeah. He said, how's the kids going? Now, what are you doing? You see any of the old guys? He would change the subject. And Frank was basically the same way. If, if you, when Frank came off stage, if I said, you know, great show tonight. Yeah, good audience. It was a good crowd, you know. Do you think that's because he was humble or because, you know, he was performing so much that when he was not performing, he just kind of wanted to detox from, 
you know, all things entertainment. No, I think it was kind of that, that he wasn't a bragger and he didn't like braggers. If you wanted to get, you wanted Frank to leave your conversation, start telling him how much money you got or how many buildings you own or all the great things you've done. He'd say, oh, that's terrific. That's great, Joey, or whatever he'd say, you know, and he'd walk away because uh, he wasn't one to brag himself. You know, he let his work speak for what he, what he did. And there you have it, our first and more to come. Come fly with me. And this is Tom Dreesen, the great comedian, on his reflections in his life and performance life and friendship with Frank Sinatra. Pack up, let's fly away. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the, well, I guess it's called the theme or the soundtrack to Shark Tank, one of the shows we love covering here on Our American Stories. And someone asked us one day, why do you do Shark Tank? Well, I always love saying back to people, why not? But there's a story behind why we do Shark Tank, and I think there's a story behind why we focus on Judge Judy. And first of all, there are real stories on Shark Tank. I mean, what's beautiful about this show is that people come on, you know who they are, and then they pitch an idea, they tell a story about a product, and then these six very wealthy people who used to not be wealthy are going to decide whether they invest in this person who's aspiring to be like those very panelists, the sharks, by ultimately growing their company. And they're asking both for the shark's capital and for the shark's knowledge. And so I think part of the reason we do this segment is because in the end, there are some serious things going on underneath the radar of Shark Tank. And that is, I think it's the, and we all think it's the epitome of the American dream. I mean, let me tell you what you don't see. You don't see any discrimination on Shark Tank. A surfer dude can walk in with flip-flops and he can be from who knows where. And if he's got a good idea, he's got the shark's attention. A young inner city kid can walk in. Bad idea? Damon John, who's African-American, is saying, hey, kid, you didn't work through it enough. Go home. And so this is what makes Shark Tank what I consider egalitarian. It's also aspirational. The people on this show don't apologize for wanting to be wealthy. They, they do, and Americans want to be wealthy. And the wealthy people on that stage used to not be wealthy. They are and they don't apologize for their wealth. And by the way, what are they doing with their wealth? They're trying to make other people wealthy. By the way, this is the story of capitalism that is never told in colleges, in grade school. So we actually think it's a mini economics course, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. And so before we dig into why we really think it's fun, and that is the star-studded cast of Shark Tank and how different all these people are, and from all different walks of life, and we're going to, over the next hour, walk you through the lives of Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban. Who were these people? How did they get to be who they were? But before we do that, we want to walk you through what we love about Shark Tank, some of the pitches. Let's talk about the silly ones first. This particular pitch combined two problems and one really weird solution. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. And number two, <laughs> they love to play golf. And if you've been oh, on a golf no. course, I won't have to convince you that the trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. 
That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Euroclub. Uh-oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent pending product that functions as a self-contained receptacle. Exactly. Now, the Sharks never really warmed up to this one and never really took the club by the hand, so to speak. But this guy was convinced he was on to the next revolutionary idea in golf and leisure sports and maybe even something for a fisherman, maybe a a Europole down the road. Who knows? And next, we have a a silly pitch. And let's just say this might just give Jackson Pollock a run for his money. There is an economy for stupid and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. Nine thirty-two of that is, is profit. And let's just say that one went straight down the toilet. Um, no money, no takers. Into the litter box. Into the litter box that one went. But let's look at a good one. John and Alex Torrey have a new startup fashion brand, and they move back into their parents' house to share a room just to make it work. I'm Jonathan Torrey, and I'm his brother, Alex Torrey, and we live in Athens, Georgia. Okay, let's try the guacamole. We come from a super tight-knit Mexican family, so it's no surprise that we have a business together and the whole family pitches in. Can I help? We've developed a unique fashion brand called Umanf. We know that clothing is a really great way to express your creativity, and we want to build a fashion brand that has a really positive social impact. Pops. Can you make sure we order some more ink? Jonathan and I put everything into Umano. We moved back home with our parents. We share a room like we did when we were seven years old. We did that willingly because we really believe that Umano has tremendous potential. And they're asking them for $150,000 for 15% of their company. We're seeking $150,000 for 15% equity in our business. Umano is fashion for good. We design men's and women's elevated fashion basics with a personalized meaning to connect people to a bigger purpose. The awesome artwork you see here is curated from some of the most amazing up-and-coming artists. Kids! Sharks, meet Jessica. She drew the skull and wants to be a teacher. How old is she? She's seven. (laughs) Wearing Umano is a badge of pride, and it's a pledge, because with every product you purchase, Umano will give a backpack full of school supplies to empower young creative minds. So always, what are the margins? What are the sales? The t-shirt is $48. Yes, Walk me how much you pay for it and then how much the gift bag mm-hmm. costs that goes back. Retail, $48. Okay. The cost of the product, $7. The backpack and school supplies is $4. So we load up total at 11. We have a 48% margin Plus, last year we sold $106,000. This year we're scheduled to close at $250,000. And Mr. Wonderful worried about whether this would violate child labor laws, but in the end, we got to the inner out. Robert? I see a lot of risk. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. It's embryonic. It's not me. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Robert and Mr. Wonderful were out. What about Lori, Damon, and Cuban? I'm going to give you 150000 but for 25%. I would have to offer the 150K for 33 and a third. Thank you very much for your offer. It's between Cuban and Laurie or Damon. Who in the end gets the deal? 
Damon, we, we really thank you for your offer. We need to be able to protect some of that equity so that we can raise more money in the future. We would love to make a deal with Mark oh. and So we have a deal? We, we have, have a deal. deal. Done. Awesome. I can't wait to see you in the skull. Oh my yeah. God, I love it. I love it. Oh my God. Through our journey, we've probably heard a hundred no's to one 100, yes. A hundred thousand no's. So these yeses really help not only build our own confidence, but also the teams that we are on the right track. And that's what we love about Shark Tank. And when we come back, Barbara Corcoran, Lori Guineer, Mark Cuban, the whole staff, the whole cast, we're going to dig into their lives, how they got where they got. We're spending some time on Shark Tank here. Why we spend so much time on it, you'll soon find out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we do Shark Tank, why we spend time on it. And now you're going to find out why. You know, those sharks all started out with nothing and needed the help of other sharks, other investors, so they could grow wealth. And now they're the wealthy ones sitting in the leather chairs. And you just heard this Mexican family, these young guys moving back into their family's house to pitch these sharks so they could grow their business. What a beautiful story. That's everything you want to know about America. So let's look at the cast, because this cast is America. And it has a couple of Canadians on it. First up, Barbara Corcoran, because boy, what a life story she has. She was the second oldest of 10 kids and grew up in a lower middle class New Jersey town. Let's take a listen. So I grew up in a very little town named Edgewater, New Jersey, which if you were there in the town, it's right on the Hudson River. And we look at New York City skyline right from our house. My little bedroom with my five sisters, we all looked out the window and we saw New York City. We never went there, but we saw it. My mother raised her 10 children. She had six girls in the girls' room, four boys in the boys' room. The girls' room was pink, the boys' room was blue. And we had one bath in between, but miraculously, my mother and father produced every one of those children from their bedroom, which was the living room couch. So for romance. (laughs) They were devout Catholics. (laughs) I didn't even have to tell you that one, right? No, you didn't. And here she is talking about a moment and a man that changed her life. I was 23 working at the Fort Lee Diner. I was in charge of one whole counter, and another woman was in charge of the other counter. The night that Ramon Simone walked in, an accent, both words, Ramon Simone. I took one look at him walking in with his beautiful dark skin, his aviator shades. He had a real suit on. I had never seen a man in a suit, not in my neck of the woods. A press collar, a white press collar. I looked at him and I knew I was going to be losing my virginity within a week. (laughs) And you know what, it was weird because it wasn't like I was saving it for anybody. It's that nobody had ever asked me for it. But he walked in, whoa! Ramon offered me a ride home. He had a big fancy car with Real leather seats. I never sat on leather before. I thought he had sprinkled them with talcum powder. I was sliding around. He gave me a ride home. I introduced him to my family. They hated him on sight. And all my mother said as we started dating is, I don't like this man. I can't imagine why a man 10 years older than you would be asking a young girl out. Well, within one short month, Ramon Simone announced that a good girl like me 
a smart girl like me should really be living in the big city, and he offered to pay for a week at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which was a block away from Bloomingdale's in New York City. I couldn't believe I was going to New York City. I announced to my mother I was leaving. I broke her heart. My last memory of her was her crying and holding on to me, and I popped into Ramon's leather seats, and off we went to New York City. And by the way, if you remember when we did our hour on Frank Sinatra, the kid from Hoboken, New Jersey, which is right next to Edgewater, he could see New York City, but he didn't think he belonged there. And that stuck with Sinatra for a long time. Well, next comes a real big moment in Barbara Corcoran's life, a real hard breakup and a real tough loss. And then Ramon and I decided that we would start the real estate company. He said, you'd be great at real estate sales. I quit my job as a receptionist for a development company where I was answering the phone, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, a hundred million times a day. And he gave me the wonderful thousand dollars. He took 51% of the partnership. After all, he said he was the financing partner. I was a working partner. I took 49%. And so for the next seven years, we built a little rental company in New York City in a sublease space, and we had 14 rental agents. I was earning more money, not much more, but more money than I had been earning as a receptionist. I felt so successful His two girls, pardon me, his three girls, I didn't know he had children for two years, but anyway, then he had three (laughs) girls. They moved in with us. I was now living with him in sin, as my mother liked to tell her neighbor. She wouldn't talk to me until I got rid of the boyfriend. That took seven years, all right? right. But I was dumping the pasta one night into the sink, and all of a sudden, Ramon Simone walks in, and he says, you know, Barbara, we have something serious to discuss. I'm going to marry your secretary. like, Tina? She went from Tina, the wonderful secretary, I won't even put a label on her. Okay? I just couldn't believe my ears or my eyes. I'm like, what? How's that possible? He said, take your time moving out. I took about a minute, <clears throat> grabbed a toothbrush, and walked out the door and moved in with my girlfriend, Kathy, who was living on East 79th Street in the studio, and she let me stay there until I got my feet back under me. I should say that for the first time in my life, I don't know what hit me. I guess that hit me. But I can't believe I managed it so badly. I felt like I was a nobody. I went from a somebody with a successful business to a nobody because I was turned out for a younger woman. Tina was five years younger than me. I had to admit she was prettier. She had real blonde hair. I was already highlighting. (laughs) I hated her for that. She was calm and pretty. I hated her. (laughs) But I went to work every day. I wanted to fire Tina, but Ray reminded me he was the controlling partner. I couldn't do that. Tina moved into my desk in Ray's office where I used to sit, and I sat out with the salespeople, and every day I went in smiling like a puppet, but in my heart I was running around a broken heart and loss of confidence. I just thought to myself, my God, I was nothing before Ray found me. He picked me up, found me. He was my mentor. He gave me confidence. He gave me the money to start the business. Everything good that had changed my life all led to one place, which was Ramon Simone. And I thought, he's right, I'll never succeed without him. But I can't even remember what clicked in my head, maybe desperation, but one day I just decided I'm not going to do this anymore. And I walked in and I said to Ramon Simone, you know what, I'm ending this business and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to chop up the 14 salespeople like a football draw. You can pick the first person, I'll pick the second. We'll do it fair. If you want to move out, you can move out. If you want me to move out, no problem. You want to keep the phone number, no problem. Or I'll get a new phone number, whatever. You go first. 
And we went right down the line. And I would say within maybe six minutes, we ended a partnership. Boom, like that. We had $37,000 in cash. He wrote me a check for half the $37,000. And as luck would have it, it was a real estate recession we were just about to dive into. And why was it great? Because commercial space wasn't leasing well. He was on the eighth floor where my old office was. I rented the identical space on the 11th floor above him. There's a little ego in that, I'm sorry to say. How needy was I? And by Monday, this was on a Thursday, by Monday, I moved my salespeople in because in those times you could rent black desks, rent phones, bang, we're in operation, and my seven salespeople moved in, and that was the birth of the corporate group. Right before I left Ramon Simone's office that day, or I should say Ray and Tina's office that day, and by the way, you know what his real name was? It wasn't even Ramon Simone. I found out from his mother, Vicky. His real name was Ray Simon, and he wasn't from the best country, like he always told me. He was from 145th Street in Harlem. Go figure. <laughs> All righty. Well, anyway, so right before I left the office, that's when Ray gave me the gift of a lifetime when he said to the, me those words that reflected in my head for the rest of my life. It still gets me going. You'll never succeed without me. I'm telling you, I don't believe in negative motivation. I'm a positive person like my mother. But he really knew my number. If he had said, I know you're going to be amazing, I'm sure I wouldn't have stayed in business in the tough times. But it was that scolding tattoo in my heart, you'll never succeed without me, that every time I was near death, growing my business through the ups and downs of the real estate recession, being overextended, being over leveraged, owing money, blah, 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 that same phrase got me going again. He gave me an insurance policy for success by insulting me. Thank God he did. And this is why we're not big fans of totally insulating your children or anybody from harm. This actually ended up being Regrettably, the worst and best thing that ever happened to Barbara Corcoran. And life happens that way. And here's Barbara Corcoran talking about a bias she exhibits when picking out certain contestants. And it's a bias towards people who either faced hard times or started with nothing. I'm very biased. They have a much better shot at succeeding. Why? A lot of reasons. Uh, They're more desirous. They've never had the fancy vacation, the delicious new car, the uh, the private schools, the higher education in many instances, and they aspire to it. Uh, so um, they get more satisfaction out of climbing that ladder and getting to it. Um, and uh, they've uh, seen their parents struggle uh, through life to give them whatever they've given them. They're more appreciative. They don't take things for granted. And you know what else, uh, which I should have started with? They're totally free from expectation. Hmm. Do you know how how lucky I was to never for a second ever think, I wonder what my parents think of this? Hmm. All it was was just let's see how far I could go. Yeah. I had nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. Do you know how freeing that is to take risks? So they're, they're not risk aversive. And you strive harder. And there you have it, Barbara Corcoran, just one aspect, one star on this star-studded panel. So if you haven't watched Shark Tank, now you know why, but you ain't heard nothing yet. When we come back, Damon John's story, Mark Cuban's story, Robert Hershevik's story, and many more here on Our American Stories, the story of Shark Tank and why we cover it.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we like Shark Tank and why we spend time on Shark Tank. And it's because of all the stories on that set, the stories of the stars, the stories of all the people pitching their wares. And again, it's every walk of American life. And it's bankers and it's lawyers and it's surfer dudes and it's, it's black people and white people and straight people and gay people. But there's none of that. There's Republicans, there's Democrats, but you hear none of it. And it's one of the one places in America where people aren't pitching their ethnicity or their grievance. They're pitching their product. And you get no special treatment, no matter what your age, ethnicity, or anything else. The women don't get special treatment by the girl contestants. The boys don't get special treatment from the boys. Damon is tough on the black contestants. He is on the white ones. The whites are as tough on the white contestants as the black ones. It's just, well, it's what America is supposed to look like. A meritocracy. And it's wonderful. Let's talk about Mark Cuban. Since the age of 12, Mark has been a businessman selling garbage bags door to door. The seed was planted early on for what would eventually become long-term success. After graduating from Indiana University where he briefly owned the most popular bar in town, Mark moved to Dallas. After a dispute with an employer who wanted him to clean instead of closing an important sale, Mark created Microsolutions, a computer consulting service. He went on to later sell Microsolutions in 1990 to CompuServe. He's worth roughly $3.4 billion. Here's Mark Cuban reflecting on his early success. When I was about 12 years old, um, and I remember asking my dad to, um, I wanted new basketball shoes because I was a basketball junkie back then. He's like, well, your shoes work. If you want a new <laughs> pair of tennis shoes, you have to go out there and get a job. And I'm like, dad, I'm, I'm 12 years old. And it just so happens he was playing poker with his buddies. And one of his buddies was like, well, I got a job for you. I've got these garbage bags that we distribute. You can sell them door to door. I'm like, okay. And it was when I was selling them and realizing that I liked to sell and that I could sell and that I recognized that selling was, was about providing a service and creating value for people that I knew that I, I would, I literally back then, I knew that I could always succeed. Um, I mean, I remember I was 16, I think, when I, I started a stamp company and started going to, to stamp shows and trade shows and just working a little bit harder than other people and, and trading up from one stamp to the next. I remember one time I started with a quarter and bought a stamp and left with $50, thinking, hey, if I could do this, I could do anything. And, and it's not that everything worked. I failed a lot, but I never, ever felt like I, I wouldn't be able to work hard enough to succeed. I, I've always been passionate. Some people thought, you know, it's, a, it's more OCD than anything else, which I think is a, a great trait for an entrepreneur. Um, when I, you know, I mentioned the stamp business, I would stay up till three, four in the morning, even though I had to get up and go to school and read Lynn stamp news and Scott stamp journals and have them all memorized and, and use that to give myself an edge. Um, even when I was in college, um, I'd be in in the library reading business books and just looking for business biographies and just reading all I could about business. Um, when I had micro solutions and, you know, I started with no money. You know, I, I pull all-nighters in, in front of borrowed computers teaching myself software and, and how to program. Um, it, it's just I've always just really enjoyed just the, the competition of business. I think, you know, in, in the sports business, I'll talk to, to our players, <clears throat> and it'll be like, 
well, you guys compete for 48 minutes and you practice a couple hours and you work on your game independently a couple hours. But the ultimate sport is business because you have to compete with everybody. And you have to do a 24 by 7 by 365 days a year forever. And there's always somebody out there trying to kick your butt. There's always somebody who looks at your business and says, I can do that better. I have a better idea. And you're, you have to compete with that person. And all the while, you have to make your customers happy, your employees happy. It, it's, it's the competitive side of me that, and any entrepreneur that I think that, that has to drive you. And, and I think that carries over into the Mavericks. I, I want to win and, and I want to compete. And by the way, you see this all the time. When they turn down entrepreneurs, it's often because they have this great idea, but they haven't done the work. And particularly on the sales front, they haven't gotten the sales. And what I love when Mark Cuban instructs these people, he doesn't just kick them out of the tank with no money. He gives them advice, like go out there and get sales and come back. He calls those people, by the way, entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to put in the work and the effort. By the way, his grandparents came to America with nothing but their name, Chabensky. They even lost that possession when the Russian Jewish family's name was changed at Ellis Island to a name Americans could more easily pronounce, Cuban. And by the way, his father was the son of an automobile upholsterer in a suburb of Pittsburgh. And he started thinking about being an entrepreneur when he was 12 and credits Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead for helping him formulate his philosophy of life. It was incredibly motivating to me, he told Forbes magazine. That book encouraged me to think as an individual, to take risks to reach my goals, and to take responsibility for my successes and my failures. And by the way, don't we wish that could be every kid, every American, having that philosophy of life? Would the country be better? And I think this is why we love Shark Tank. Let's listen to... Damon John's story, he spent his childhood in Queens, New York, raised with seven sisters and brothers by his single mom. In high school, he worked full-time as a part of a co-op program, which he credits with stoking his entrepreneurial spirit. After his high school graduation, he started a computer van service, but it was selling hats and clothing that would make Damon John his fortune. He got together with his friends. His mom mortgaged her house and John started his own company. He held a full-time job at the local Red Lobster while doing all of this to make ends meet, working on the clothing business between shifts. That small business, FUBU, is now an apparel empire. He has a net worth of over $300 million. He was on with Rachel Ray and his mom to talk about an experience and experiences and lessons his mom, that single mom, taught. Her son. Let's take a my listen. My life is a is a series of beautiful women. It started with my mother. I have three daughters. You know, a great fiance. So, so I'm, I'm a product by of good beautiful girls. Women. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of son? What kind of son did you have here? What was he like growing up? Oh, Damon was a little mischievous, <laughs> and he was always figuring out ways he could make money. Well, he was always thinking outside the box. Legitimate ways right? he could make money. And Legitimate he, ways he could make money. <laughs> That's a very important word. Man, it was that hard? <laughs> uh, plus, he was very responsible, very responsible, and always knew how to handle money. 
I, I love that, that mm-hmm. in an early age, you understood the value of a dollar. I didn't have much of it. Um, That's right. So, and you know, we had, we had to make it stretch. And I would, I, it would be an example of my mother. My mother would show me how, to, how I would learn by her examples. We didn't have much, and I would watch her do whatever she could. Work and I love how you talk about your quality of life. You never yeah. felt suffered, even though you were not financially uh, you know, doing super well. It never felt like that at home. You always felt special. and I always felt like special. You know, I, growing up now, knowing I was dyslexic and knowing that we were going through challenging times, but she would make me feel so loved and like there was nothing in the world that could stop whatever I was right. doing uh, as long as I listened to her. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, she sent me to a different city or a different place every single summer to widen my understanding Your of horizons, the world. Yeah. I went to Hawaii, right, uh, for one year. But think about it. She saved up for three years. It cost $100. I was on a 19 connecting flight wow. to Hawaii. <laughs> and I stayed with a friend of hers. But I went to Hawaii. And you got to see the world. Yeah. Do you think that's, what's the greatest lesson, if you, if you had to pick, what's the greatest lesson or, or motto or, or the essence of what your mom taught you? Uh, that I was always responsible for my actions. Um, yes. And she, listen, I got left back in seventh grade. The teacher said, hey, you can pass, because they knew I was acting up. My mother said, no, guarantee that he's going to be left back. Then she went and got a third job so that a babysitter could watch me so I <laughs> stay in the house and be punished the entire summer because I had to be responsible for my actions. That's a tough lesson, but see how well was, it, it Was it harder on you, wasn't it, Ma? It was hard on me because when you punish your child, you punish yourself. Yourself, yeah. Personal responsibility, hard work, sounds like America to me. When we come back, more on this all-American show, Shark Tank, after these messages. Our American Stories, our final segment in our hour-long celebration of Shark Tank, which is just all American entertainment. By the way, what we love is that the contestants are unapologetic about their ambitions, which is what makes Shark Tank so much fun. In an age when being wealthy merits an apology, or worse, is a social stigma, this show could even be called countercultural, because it celebrates the pursuit and the creation of wealth. A crazy idea. And by the way, what makes it addictive is that the self-made millionaires and billionaires we're profiling and sitting on that panel are no different than the contestants pitching them. Because only 10, 20, or 30 years ago, they were those very same people. They get it. Pitching their businesses to rich investors, struggling to acquire capital, struggling to acquire knowledge. And that's what's just so good about this show. Let's look at another one of the sharks. Lori Grenier. She started with one idea and turned it into a multi-million dollar international brand. She's now regarded as one of the most prolific inventors of retail products, having created over 500 and holds 120 U.S. and international patents. She is a Shark Tank three-time Emmy Award winner, and here she is talking about how she got her start. Many of you know me from Shark Tank, maybe. Some of you know me from QVC. So many of you will wonder, well, how did she get there? How did she create 500 products? How did she get 120 patents? Well, the answer is actually kind of simple. 
I had a great idea. I had no schooling in business. I had no entrepreneurship class or MBA. I just thought of one great idea. And then I had the passion and the drive to bring it to life. And the key words there, well, at least for us, no MBA. She had an idea, and the word she used was drive. And it takes a lot of drive. And again, another one of our themes here on the show, Entitlement Society, you know, raising our kids with too much, taking away their drive and their curiosity, by the way. Uh, We had a terrific segment the other day and a terrific story uh, in which we had the great Wayne Gretzky talking about hockey when he was young and how they just went out on 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 the ice and played. And they were curious and they messed around and there were no parents driving Wayne Gretzky around in hockey leagues all over the place. And he said he learned all the magic and everything just playing a lot with the friends nearby and having fun on the ice. And so a lot of these themes we come back to again and again. Let's talk about another character, and this one's a great one. Robert Hershevik, born in Croatia. He fled to communist Yugoslavia with his family when he was eight, settling in Toronto. There the family lived in a friend's basement for 18 months. And by the way, you're going to hear a lot more of this story You're getting a flavor for it already, aren't you? Again, all these contestants start with nothing. All of the sharks in the end started with nothing too. Let's hear Robert and his life story. I was born in Croatia, which was a communist country when I was there called Yugoslavia. We had dirt floors and hay and no running water for a long time, but it never seemed bad. Because I was a little kid, my grandmother, lots of family, dogs, cats, horses. You never know the situation you grow up in until you compare it to something else. Yugoslavia was a great country if you were part of the Communist Party. My dad was very anti-communist and would say all kinds of bad things about communism. He got thrown in jail 22 times, and the last time he got thrown in, he was told, if you come back, you will never return. He packed a suitcase, grabbed my mom and me, and he crossed the border to Italy, got on a boat, and came to Canada. In Yugoslavia, my dad was such a happy guy. He was a manager, and he was pretty up there. He was well-respected for what he did. And then he comes to Canada, and he's sweeping floors in the factory. He was never the same. I think I'm like every other kid. You never appreciate your parents um, until they're gone. And I just think how hard he worked to give me that opportunity. And I just feel such a need to justify that sacrifice. I had lots of dreams when I was growing up. I wanted to be a detective, a vet, a race car driver. I was so unfocused. My best friend went for this interview at a computer company. And I'm thinking, computers, who cares? Boring. Until he says, the starting salary is $30,000. I'm like, what? And he says, well, I didn't get the job. Here's the guy's number. Call him. That's how I got started in the computer business. The Herjavec Group is one of the world's largest cybersecurity companies. I'm really passionate about it because it feels like we do good. I really think the world is changing. The internet has a lot of good, but has a lot of potential bad. And by protecting companies, we're making the world a safer place. I think what makes me different than the other sharks is I'm an actual immigrant. I actually came here on a boat. That shapes a lot of how I think and who I am. 
people think today, oh, I can't get ahead, it's really hard. Yeah, damn right, it's really hard, and it should be hard. Entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. It's not about who your parents are, it's not about your color, it's not about your sex, it's not about your religion. You know, business doesn't really care. Business only cares about the value that you add. Indeed, it only cares about the value that you add. And by the way, what a story here. He was in his 20s and between jobs when a college roommate, as you just heard him talk about, told him about IBM mainframes and emulation boards. But here's what he didn't say. He was underqualified for that position, but talked his way into the role by offering to work for free for the first six months. While working for free, He did what Corcoran did. He waited tables at local restaurants. He ended up becoming a general manager of that computer company, left it to start his own business from the basement of his home, ended up selling his first business to AT&T for over $100 million. But he worked for free for six months at the company, and the company taught him what he needed to learn because he didn't know anything about computers, and that would be called an apprenticeship, folks. By the way, that's almost illegal right now in America. You got to go to some college and spend money. He didn't spend money. He worked for free. And then he had a part-time job. And some of this common sense stuff, I think, is going to start creeping back into this great country as we overemphasize pushing kids into college, saddling up with debt and no real skills, particularly grit, particularly just toughing it out. We're not giving them those skill sets. Last but not least, everyone's favorite character, love him or hate him. You either love him or you love to hate him. But the show is not the same without him. And that is, of course, Mr. Wonderful. How did Kevin O'Leary become Mr. Wonderful? Well, it started in, if you can believe it, Canada again. He was born in Montreal to an Irish father and a Lebanese mother. O'Leary's father died when he was young, and it was his stepfather and mother who shaped a lot of his life. His mom saved a third of each paycheck, putting the funds into a large-cap dividend-yielding stock and bond fund. Nobody knew how good of an investor she was until she died. But suffice it to say... Her son was impressed. But back when O'Leary was a kid, he seemed more into guitars than making money or building empires. All of that changed thanks to one job. I remember my very first job. It was at a place called Magoo Ice Cream Parlor in Ottawa, Canada. And it was incredibly traumatic for me. And it taught me a lesson that I've never forgotten. It ruled my life in business from that day on. It was my second day working there. And the owner had hired me to scoop ice cream. I was finishing work one day, and she said to me, get down on your knees and scrape the gum off the floor. And she looked at me like a witch. And I said, no. And she said, you're fired. Get out of my ice cream store. I didn't even know what fired meant. But within minutes, I was on my bicycle on my way home in utter shame, in shock that she had that kind of control over my life. It was stunning and powerful. I have never, ever in my life worked for someone again, ever. No one has ever had control over me, ever, and never will. I can't believe I'm so emotional. (laughs) And look what shapes our lives. Sometimes hardship or a bad experience changes everything. Here's O'Leary's stepfather, George Kenwady, and then O'Leary himself, taking us back to the start of the business that would eventually make O'Leary rich. Kevin always went when other people were afraid to tread. So he started his business from nothing. I mean, he had one product. He had two telephones in one little small place in Toronto. By the way, even though his nickname is Mr. Wonderful, as a comment on his not quite warm and fuzzy demeanor, O'Leary 
is a team player. And by the way, what we love most about Shark Tank, I think, is what it teaches about capital. Because the Sharks aren't just giving away their money. What we will see over and over again with the contestants is they want the right shark, the shark with the right knowledge. And in the end, that's what capital is. Capital is knowledge. And this is why in the end, we rarely get political on this show, and it isn't really political, but it's why socialism doesn't work. It doesn't create great knowledge pools. The government's on top of everything. There's no competition. There's no accidents. There's no stumbling. There's no yearning. There's no drive. There's no personal responsibility. There's no risk-taking. All the wonderful words you heard. And that's what makes Shark Tank so appealing. It's not overtly political. It's not. But in a way, it's deeply political. About individual freedom and risk-taking and personal responsibility. That's why this show is such a big hit. It's aspirational and it's inspirational. And it's egalitarian, too. And the star of the show is the dream, the American dream. Let's face it, and capitalism itself. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story behind why we spend so much time on Shark Tank. Well, our American Dreamers segment should give it a, uh, give it a clue. We spend a lot of time on the American dream. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. 